Good evening, everyone. This is Ryan. Before we begin tonight's show, I just want to bring to your attention that this interview was originally recorded in 2020, and I'm re-airing it tonight because in the past two years, our audience has increased by 500%, and many of you may not have heard this interview with Barry Cooper. It's definitely compelling, and you're going to know a lot more about Barry next year. Trust me. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, we present a featured interview with a warrior of the light. This gentleman has a background and story unlike any other you've ever heard on the show before. There's even going to be a six-part documentary series about this gentleman's life pretty soon, and all I can tell you is that Ever since I came across him, I felt like we've had multiple past lives together. I just feel a great kinship, and I want to help him. And I think you'll want to help him, too, because he's representing a lot of great energy. Let us begin tonight's show. Well, it's been five years, but I'm so glad that we're welcoming back to the show Barry Cooper. He's a former narcotics cop turned freedom activist and criminal defense expert witness. He is an individual unlike any other on the planet today. You can learn more about Barry by going to his website at nevergetbusted.com, a site that I have utilized several times and gotten a lot of information that has helped me get along with life and not dealt with this uh, the police state. So, Barry, welcome back to our show. How are you doing? <laughs> Man, Ryan, I'm doing fantastic. It's good to be back on your show. That's ever growing i think Thank it's you. gotten much bigger since the uh, last time i was on yeah oh yeah it's it, it's like growing the same rate that the american waistline is it's just getting bigger and <laughs> it's like we're feeding it corn dogs and stuff like that just going up. so well let's pile in some more corn dogs today <laughs> awesome so when uh first i want to touch base on is that my understanding is that you are back in the philippines and you had this terrible experience in australia what happened to you with Australia. Well, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had left Mexico three years ago to make the Philippines my home. And Philippines is Asia. It's the only country in Asia that uh, English is their second language. So almost everybody speaks English. My wife is Filipino and my kids are Filipino. They're all grown in their 20s. And so now all my staff that never get busted are Asians. <laughs> and I made Philippines my home. Well, uh, Netflix and HBO documentary documentary producers uh, close to a year ago contacted me wanting to do a documentary film about my life. Um, so we flew to Australia for two weeks of filming. And during the filming, uh, we got caught in COVID and couldn't leave for six months. So I was stranded oh in Melbourne, Australia for six months. 
before we could catch a flight back to the Philippines. We finally got back uh, last week. We completed our 14-day mandatory quarantine. And, man, it feels good to be home. So what was Australia like? I mean, is it become a full-fledged, a tyrannical police state? It just seems it's incredible. It seems like they're arresting people for posting stuff on Facebook. And I can't see how that's not going to happen in the U.S. or other places in the world. Yeah, well, we know during these weird times, like I mentioned to you before, it feels like reality has just been inverted. Um, I've never seen the madness, madness like this. But to answer your question, we were really impressed with Australia. We got there pre-COVID uh, right before they locked down. And it actually, Melbourne was, I, I named it one of my favorite cities in the world. Fantastic people. I've never seen such a large population of white people be so polite. <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> uh, over in Australia, they value, you know, being kind, helping one another, politeness. Whereas in contrast to where I grew up in the United States, especially Texas, the South, the deep South or the dirty South, there wasn't much value placed on, you know, being kind. You know, the, the louder you could get, the meaner you could get wins in Texas where I'm from. So that was really nice to experience that. Now, you got to understand, while we were in Australia, Philippines locked down, and then they claim that the Philippines has the longest and harshest lockdown in the world, and I agree. So I'm glad we were out of the Philippines during those moments. But I was in Australia during those moments before they had started their complete lockdown. So as soon as we had finally got a flight back to the Philippines, that's when the hard lockdown hit Melbourne. And it was ugly. It was horrible. I've got a video that I'll like? be releasing of my, my encounters with the Melbourne police. And it wasn't pretty. Um, yeah, man, it turned crazy. And it was sad to see the Australian people have the eye-awakening moment that the police would treat them like that because they had never had in, in the history of Australia. And they sort of were just running around like chickens with their heads cut off, not knowing what to do. They couldn't believe it. They said, you know, I heard so many of them say, Australia is becoming more and more like the U.S. every day. And wow. So it was sad. So, so we see this we lockdown, got, which means what, they, they kept everyone in their house? Yes. Yeah, we were. We could only come out one hour a day we could only Jeez. We yeah we could only uh leave five kilometers from our home um there was a curfew at 8 p.m until uh i think seven in the morning something like that so at 8 p.m we all had to be home we could get to the grocery stores there was plenty of food um of course they kept the liquor stores open so we could drink their wonderful Australian beer. <laughs> and I was fortunate. I was fortunate, you know, because here in Philippines, drug laws are really strict. And I abide by, you know, their drug laws here. I don't want to go to prison for the rest of my life. They'll put you so in prison for the I rest was, of your life? For weed? They would here in the Philippines, yeah. They're really? strict on dr drug enforcement here. Well, I was, I was thankful in Australia. I hooked up with a really good grower. And, man, I, I got to try Gorilla Glue. 
uh, <laughs> uh, punky lion, and all these different breeds of cannabis that I didn't get a chance to explore 12 years ago when I fled the U.S. So it was really nice. So I just stayed in quarantine smoking weed and watching Netflix with my beautiful wife. Wow. And when you look at the training that you had as a police officer in the U.S., and you look at some of the practices, the way that the people, the police in Australia acted, what is the comparable difference? And do you think that the police officers in the U.S. are to be feared more, that they're more aggressive? Or is there any comparable differences are pretty much the same? Was there any similarities in terms of how the police both interacted with people and commanded people to, to obey? Well, to answer your first question, what's the difference in the police back then and police now? And, I'm, and I would answer that with two words, absolute absurdity. Um, I, I have condemned police behavior for the last 12 years being a proponent in the, in the war on drugs. And I've been really critical of not only law enforcement's general practices, but my practices, what I did as one of the United States top drug agents, you know, what I did were crimes against humanity. I thought I was doing the right thing uh, by arresting people for pot and other drugs, nonviolent drug offenses. I believed I was doing the right thing because my parents taught me and that this was pre-internet. You know, I didn't have an internet to to check my parents and school teachers and preachers' arguments that, you know, they made the argument drugs were from the devil. So I believed that. So I went out and started busting those drugs. And I'm, I apologize for that. Been working on my karma ever since then by helping other people get out of jail or get their drug case dismissed through my consulting practice. Um, but compared comparing law enforcement to when I left to law enforcement now, it's insane. And the American police are the most dangerous police in the world. There's no question. That's not just me saying that, but the statistics show that the United States holds the world all time world record for humanity, for the number of incarcerations, proportionately and numerically. Um, you know, when I fled the U.S., I went to Venezuela, then Brazil, then Mexico, now Philippines, and I had experience in Australia. And it's my job to keep up with drug markets and how the police behave in certain jurisdictions. I feel safe around the police in the Philippines. I feel safe around the police in Mexico and Brazil. I did not feel safe around the police in the United States or Venezuela. And the last two weeks of my experience in Australia, I did not feel safe around the Australian police. So there are police agencies that are doing a much better job protecting their citizens doing a much better job than the United States. The United why is it States like that in the U.S.? In I don't understand. Why is it like that in the U.S.? I mean, I, I understand because I know some people say, well, the police are like, well, there's only a few bad apples. Like we had Sheriff Mack on our show before, and Sheriff Mack is a constitutional sheriff. And I think he was pretty nice. And I've interviewed a gentleman before named Lou Tolano. He's from the NYPD, and he seems to have a lot of integrity. 
and these people they, they seem to carry themselves very well but then um I have a hard time believing that it's just a few bad apples because I go to the website, the Free Thought Project, and you're seeing police get away with horrendous crimes all the time. So I, I just don't understand why things are so different in the U.S., why the police act a certain particular way, or why they act so violent in other countries as compared to other countries. Like, what, what, is it that, what is it about? Is it the crime is so bad that they have to be act a certain way in order to deal with it? Like, I just don't understand what the core reason behind it is. Well... The few bad apple argument is just a bad apple argument. (laughs) (laughs) We can throw that one out of the window. Any person who swears on oath to obey the current penal code in the United States is not a good apple. They're, They're bad apples. Just by putting on the badge and the gun means they support a system of humanitarian of abuse on humanity. Um, So every cop's a bad cop. Now, are there some cops that are more aggressive than other cops? Yes. Why are the American police so aggressive? I think it, it evolved from when Nixon announced the war on drugs, then Reagan, and then the Bush administration, this hard on crime, tough on crime, you know, that gets votes. Old people want to feel safe. And old people have been lied to about the effects on humans when they do drugs, especially when they do drugs. They've been lied to. They believe a person's going to snort a line of cocaine and go rob a bank. So they vote for tougher crime, t- tougher laws, uh, harder on crime type candidates well what that evolved it evolved from getting votes to a lot of money when they privatized the the u.s prisons meaning their stock on the stock market goes up and down based on the number of prisoners so they they saw they saw a way to get votes and and to make a lot of money so it is insane. I rarely go to sleep not thinking about the 80,000 people in the U.S. that they have in the hole or solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is a means of torture. The United Nations has condemned it as a means of torture. Yet 80,000 people are being tortured right now in the U.S. And it is torture. You know, I was put in solitary confinement nine times. Every time I got arrested, they put me in the hole. And I I would literally almost go batshit crazy in there. It's horrible. I still have and suffer from severe PTSD, and I battle with depression from time to time because because of this insane, needless drug war. Jeez, it's so awful. I'm sorry that you went through that. And when you mentioned before about uh, that you've arrested a lot of people, you're one of the top drug enforcement agents agents in the the country, have you reconciled with a lot of those people? Have you made peace with a lot of those people? Have you received forgiveness from some of those people? And have you become friends with some of those people that you once busted? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. So I think there were three questions in there. what hurts me as much as hurting those people is their forgiveness. 
you would think that would be a healing thing and it is healing, but it's also like, you know, I did that horrible thing to your family and you sincerely forgive me and, and you're willing to be my friend. That really will crush uh, anybody with a conscience that'll crush them to powder. And, you know, when I first released Never Get Busted Traffic Stops, Volume 1, that's what, you know, kind of rose me to fame, was releasing that one video. I, when I saw it was getting the attention it got, I made an announcement from my website and on some radio shows, you know, explaining if I've arrested you, get in touch with me. I can't take back the years I put you in jail or put you in prison. I can't take back the, you know, the torture I caused your family by raiding your home at three o'clock in the morning. But, you know, tell me how much your bail cost tell me what your lawyer's fees were and i'll take this money that i'm making off this video and send you some that's awesome <laughs> you know oh i God. did the best i could i've had and i had three people contact me from that three or four and each one of them absolutely wouldn't take the money for any reason it seemed like their healing came from me i, I think they're I think the, the justification moment for them and the healing for them came from me recognizing and sincere, recognizing what I'd done wrong and sincerely apologizing and sincerely hurting for them, you know, the harm I caused them. And yes, I've become friends with, with several of them. There are some that, you know, had contacted me. I'd apologize and they say, no, don't apologize. You changed my life. You know, I was a drug addict and I was out robbing and stealing and killing. And, um, I got out of jail. I spent, you know, five or six years in jail and I came out clean and I've been clean ever since. And my answer to them was, you know, well, don't thank me for changing your life because there's other ways we could have changed your life besides putting you in a cage. And I explained, I'm glad your cage experience, you know, came out to be something positive in your life. But knowing what I know now, we could have got you into rehab. We could have did some community support, you know, those type of things. And you could still come out, you know, what you term clean on the other end without of having to throw you in a cage. So even when they would give me condolences, I wouldn't accept that just based purely on principles that's amazing i mean it's incredible that you were the only person i'm aware of that's done this i mean there actually i think there have been some other police officers that have come out and have been straightforward about what is happening or they've they've made try to make penance but i think you're the most noteworthy one have you talked to other police officers that have that are kind of taking your path have others reached out to you and have had the desire to do what you are doing to you know, reach out to those who they feel that they acted morally reprehensible to and made peace, made amends. Well, well, yes, I have. You know, t twelve years ago, when I started this and then started busting cops, I was busting cops and filming cops when it wasn't cool. I mean, people thought I was the devil for pointing a camera at a cop or setting up traps 
for them to steal money. Now it's a sport. You know, hating on cops and filming cops is a sport in the U.S. But I lost everything because of other cops for turning against the blue or stepping back across the blue line. I lost literally everything. You know, I had to flee my country. I wound up losing all my family. My my wife was murdered by, you know, one of my best friends who's in jail now. I had a conversation with him in, in jail during the filming in Australia. They had to stop the filming. I fell apart because of all these things I've lost. I actually became a drug addict myself for two years in Mexico. A lot of people don't know that. I was addicted to methamphetamine and it was directly related to all the traumas I had suffered in the drug war and then later as as an activist. You know, I had a suitcase of clothes and that's it. I was sleeping under a palm tree in Mexico, drinking and doing drugs. Thought I wasn't going to make it out from under that palm tree. Um, what was the thing that, now, that moved you out of it? What was the, the spark? that kind of got you on the right path. What moved me out of the condition I was in, I didn't want that to be the end of the Barry Cooper story. That still touches me. I feel like crying now. I'm going to get through this without it, but. You feel free to cry, Barry. Become as you are. Whoever you are, be who you are. We love you and accept you as we love and accept all people who appear on our show. There is no right or wrong emotion. Be who you are. Mm. We love you. Accept you for who you are. Those are very kind words. Those are very kind words. So, I'm sorry, what was the question? Um, The question is, if other police officers have reached out to you and expressed the desire to do some of the things that you are doing where they are trying to make peace with some of the people that they've wronged. I mean, I think about what you're, you're saying. I mean, at the time, you thought you were doing the right thing. I think a lot of people go through something where they believe that what they're doing is, is, is right, but it takes a huge person to realize that what they are doing is wrong and also act on it. I think, I think a lot of people in the world today probably realize that they're not doing the right thing but very few have the desire or the moral courage to actually stand up and do it and that's why uh, one of the reasons why i have so much respect for you because you you, know, you actually did that so i mean it, it takes well, a lot to you. do that. I, thank you i don't know if it was courage or stupidity <laughs> 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 um it can be argued both ways i was just doing what came natural to me my mother taught me they took me away from my mother when I was very young, when I was very young. But I remember a lot of what my mother taught me. And one of the things my mom taught me was, said, Barry, it doesn't matter if a million people are standing up against you. If you're right, you stand for what's right. She's a very compassionate woman, taught me to love animals and how to have a conscience. And I still carry those things with me today. But yeah, I've had cops, as I said, cops destroyed my life. The the criminal justice system and the family court system destroyed my life. You know, they took my two kids from me. One, it was autistic, Zach, my stepson. You hear about him on Fox News and all of that, but he kind of overshadowed my other son getting taken. People don't realize that two of our kids were taken because of that raid 
that was triggered by me setting up police on, on cop busters. But see, so back then I was, I was evil. I was considered an evil person. Even the activists didn't want to have anything to do with me because they didn't trust me or they were, they were very jealous of the attention I was getting or they still thought I was a cop. And I understand all that. So the activists didn't like me. The cops didn't like me. I really didn't have a home or anywhere that I could call, you know, have a group of people. But now that's changed and the people consider me a hero. You know, the, the kids that were 10 years old, 12 years ago, when I released that video and started busting police, they were 10 years old. They were interested in SpongeBob and things like that. Well, now they're 21, 22 years old, and they're just now seeing me on the internet, and they're like, holy shit, we love this guy. <laughs> and and, and the, same, the same with the police. I, have, I, I get a pretty steady flow of emails from police who have quit the force or they're thinking about quitting the force, and they say I'm the one who opened their eyes. And a lot of them apologize. They say, I hated you when you first came out with those videos, but it turns out you're right. You're right. Um, so yeah, yeah, I've, I've changed some minds in law enforcement. Awesome. You know, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you agree or disagree about this, but I think there are a lot of good people that want to contribute to their community, that want to stand up and protect others. But this idea that the police have this qualified immunity where the laws that apply to regular people do not apply to them. Like I think you're more inclined to, you see a lot of police, they seem to get away with a lot of the things that the average person doesn't get, get away with. If police didn't have qualified immunity, if they were held to the same standards, if not higher standards, or punished harshly for doing things because you, they do have the, uh, uh, you know, a gift of grant of power, the average person doesn't, do you think that would change something? What do you think would be the, uh, or is there another game changer that could really uh, make things a lot more peaceful with police? Well, uh, of course. And no, I don't think taking away qualified immunity alone would cause police to be nicer. We got to understand that the reason the police are behaving like they're behaving is because their handlers want them to act like that. The people who own this planet, you know, the families at the very top of the food chain. And then like Trump is the CEO of the corporation of the United States. They get orders handed down. And by the time it gets to the police, it's like zero tolerance, kick their ass. Uh, we got you covered. So, you know, we're talking about people lately because of COVID and the riots are talking about defunding the police, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's good, but I haven't seen a workable plan unfold and I know where to start I know how to well, how, get real police how? policing the community like I see here in the Philippines like I see in Mexico now they're not perfect but because of my experience being all over the world paying attention to police here's how you do it the first thing we've got to do is get rid of bad laws so police aren't out there enforcing bad laws what is a bad law any law that doesn't have a victim. So throw out all the drug laws, prostitution, gambling, child support, all these laws that they're locking millions of people up for, take them off the books. And then the police don't have to enforce inhumane, wrong, immoral laws. Once that's done, 
that leaves only the violent crimes, such as robbery, killing, rape, burglary, theft. Well, after you take the bad laws off the books, you put the cops in their office and make them stay there like firemen. Firemen do not drive around neighborhoods looking for a fire. They wait till they're called to a fire. Police need to wait until they're called to the scene of a crime. And people go, oh my God, who's gonna protect us from the robbers and the burglars? Well, less than a half of a half of percent of violent crimes are caught in progress by police. In other words, police rarely catch somebody burglarizing your home. They always get there after the burglar has left. So we do not need police, community police, driving around, writing tickets, claiming to keep us safe. So after we get rid of the bad laws, second step, make the cops stay in the office. Then when there's a crime committed, call the police for them to show up and gather evidence, gather witness statements, dust for fingerprints, all of these things to hopefully get a warrant for the person's arrest that committed these crimes. And then the third thing, we do need some kind type of SWAT team, but not to raid homes. And that would be for your occasional bank robbery in progress or a kidnapping. That's when we would deploy the SWAT team to surround the bank and, and have that special forces training like the Mexican police have. The Mexican police all have special forces training. They drive around in the back of their trucks with big machine guns, and they're not there to put Barry in jail. They're not there to check my pocket for marijuana. They're not there to raid my house. They are there to keep bad gangsters from coming into the city trying to rob people or rob things. In fact, there are no home raids in Mexico. Can you believe that? The United States of America <laughs> has 50,000 SWAT raids per year. That's I thought over it was 80,000. It I, may be 80,000. It probably went up. So that's probably more accurate. And, and when you get to the 50, 80,000, really, what's the difference? When one SWAT raid on a home for drugs is too much. But point is, they're, they're raiding homes like crazy, and it's unnecessary. There are no home raids in Mexico. The only only time a, ho a home will get raided in Mexico is if it's a cartel member that did something wrong or a visiting cartel member that's not supposed to be in that region, they'll raid his house. But the rule of thumb in Mexico, you buy drugs from the same corner. Everybody buys drugs from the same group of people. It's consistently packaged. It's consistently the same price. And once you get into your house with the drugs, you're safe. You can do whatever you want in your own home. I, I saw, my wife and I saw a, a wife and husband. They were drunk fighters. They lived across the street on the second story from us. And we could see them on their balcony, screaming, yelling at each other, throwing glasses. I mean, these fights got violent, but these are two people who choose to live that way. Neighbors would call the Mexican oh police. God. The police would come down and instead of going through their <laughs> gate, the police would look up the balcony, say, do you want us here? And they go, no, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and the police would leave. <laughs> the police would just, leave. Okay, just, so this, this video that I'm going to be releasing, my wife and I were in an argument, and the neighbor <laughs> called. Next thing I know, four armed Melbourne police are in my house, and I am letting them have it. So there's a castle law, a true castle law in Mexico 
even Venezuela, in Brazil, here in the Philippines, they do not raid your house like the American police do. I don't understand why they would raid your house for drugs. Isn't this, isn't this really weird? It's like saying, well, you know, drugs are bad. If I was told when I was a kid, drugs are bad. Well, what about Oxycontin and all these other prescribed drugs that they just force on people that are killing more people? Like, I don't think marijuana has ever killed anyone. I mean, I've had a couple of uh, cookies and I felt like I was going to die, but I didn't. And, you know, I... I I'm sure that if I took a lot of Oxycontins, I'd probably drop dead. So I don't understand why, of all drugs, weed is targeted. Is there something mystical or magical about weed? Is it something that helps people escape their, their, their dark consciousness or something? I just don't understand why weed and these other drugs are targeted, but the other narcotics that they sell over the counter, they're fine. Well, I have an answer for that. The reason marijuana and other psychedelics are targeted is because they make the slave population, which is me, we're all slaves. It makes us unruly where we won't mind. We, we will get drunk and wake up the next morning with a hangover and go to work and still do what our boss tells us. But you start smoking weed and your eyes open. Take some LSD, take mushrooms, take ayahuasca, ibogaine, all of these, all these psychedelics that I've taken hundreds of times. I've helped other people in ceremonies, get through traumas and, and drug addiction using these psychedelics. These are all eye openers. And you start smoking weed every night, and pretty soon you don't understand why your boss is screaming at you because you're one <laughs> minute late. And you're like, fuck him. You know, I'm, I, I am not going to be a slave. And they realize that these, especially marijuana, has this effect on the slave population. And uh, so they've made it illegal. They do not want their labor force smoking weed. They'd rather us drink and go to work with a, hung a hangover. It's so funny you said uh, weed, uh, marijuana was a liberator for me. I started thinking so much. And I, what I realized with weed is that it made me remember that I was always curious. I had an insatiable curiosity. It was just buried in the public education system. And then once I rediscovered discovered marijuana, it exploded, and then doing ayahuasca was a, was a life changer, and doing MDMA was another game changer. MDMA was probably one of the most beautiful experiences. I did it, I've done it a couple times in a medicinal setting. It was just stunning. But what was your experience on ayahuasca and the other one, ibogaine? Because somebody has told me about that. They wanted me to do a ceremony. I just don't know if I can leave the planet right now. I just it, ayahuasca was really rough, but um, <laughs> it was. Uh, well, what, that's experiences. Yeah, that's a big subject. When when I fled the U.S. I stayed in Venezuela for eight months. That's all I could take. That place was the most dangerous place I'd ever lived in my life. Well, we advanced, snuck through 13 Venezuelan checkpoints and advanced to the Brazilian border where my family and I were the first Americans to ever be granted asylum. They gave us asylum in Brazil from the U.S. Once I told them my story and they saw everything online, all the numbers of arrests and raids I had suffered from exposing corrupt cops. Well, there was a, a person who emailed me that said, I don't know if you do cases in Brazil, but I need help. We got raided. And if you'll help me, I can give you a free ayahuasca ceremony. And I'm like, hell, I'm in Brazil right now. So I couldn't believe it. It's one of those miracle type things. So I spent, it's a Christmas miracle. This is awesome. I spent one year 
on a, an Iowa at an ayahuasca retreat center for the rich and famous. I tripped ayahuasca next to the president of HBO in Europe. I tripped ayahuasca next to Ewa Ewart. She's a TV personality for a BBC. I tripped ayahuasca next to Vogue models and their photographers. And I got a really good sense of what that medicine plant is about. Ayahuasca is DMT all night. The, the active ingredient in ayahuasca is DMT. And actually, you can leave the planet, but I don't want people to be afraid. The cool thing about ayahuasca and ibogaine, which I'll talk in just a second, talk about in just a second, the uh, ayahuasca puts a person in a sleep-like state, kind of like a trance. And then you dream, you start dreaming things or having visions, seeing things. But you're never unconscious. You could, at any time, you can snap out of it at will and go to the bathroom and come back. That's one thing I love about ayahuasca. So I got all the experience with ayahuasca. And once my legal things got clear, I was allowed to move to Mexico where I opened an ibogaine uh, retreat center for drug addicts. And I used ibogaine to help me with my drug addiction. Ibogaine, they claim, is the strongest psychedelic on the planet. Well, the term strong is subjective. What's strong to one person, not strong to another. Now, in, in, in the sense of a psychedelic experience, ibogaine is actually one of the weakest. It's nothing like ayahuasca. Let's say LSD and ayahuasca and then mushrooms, those really, in terms of strength of a psychedelic experience, they're at the top of the food chain. The ayahuasca, LSD, and I'm mushrooms. Ayahuasca. Now, ibogaine is down there way low. What ibogaine does, it puts you in the same trance-like state where you're, all you want to do is lay on the bed, and you loop dream. You loop dream and loop dream. It's actually tormentive. It's right. tormentive. And it does, it keeps you in that state all night and maybe the next day. And you're like, holy shit, I just want to rest. But while what's taking place there is not only is the ibogaine helping the person's psychological problems that helped them become an addict, but ibogaine also does a measurable, re, a physical measurable reset of pleasure centers, damaged pleasure centers and neurotransmitters in the brain. It repairs those. Where, the, where drug addiction, PTSD, traumas, all that sort of kind of makes these neurotransmitters sick and small and their little tentacles start, start uh, getting smaller and a, and a bad color. Just picture like a sea urchin, an unhealthy sea urchin. That's what a lot of receptors look like in your brain after trauma and a lot of drug use. Well, the ibogaine actually helps those become healthy and resets those back to its pre-addictive state in one dose. Ibogaine is the strongest in terms of therapeutic benefits for trauma and drug addiction than any other psychedelic I know out there. What is this new docuseries that's coming out about your life and what does it focus on and where can we, uh, when will it air? 
Okay, well, for years now, I've been, uh, I've had film producers pay me for my life story rights, and one thing or another would happen, and the the movie just wouldn't get made. Well, I got an email from the producer of the year for Australia. Said Barry, we would like to make a documentary out of your life. We've been following you for a long time. And we're in the golden age of documentaries right now. People want docu documentaries almost more than they want movies starring Brad Pitt. People seem to be really flocking to the real. So I signed a contract with them, uh, and they are producers for Netflix and HBO. We flew to Australia. I touched on that a bit. And halfway through the filming, because I don't manage my myself or my company mia manages that you know when i met her four or five years ago she was seconds away from being vice president of the largest hotel chain in southeast asia so she has this very corporate business way of managing things that that my company needed so they pulled her off set and asked her uh you know could they have a discussion with her and then she came to me uh, about an hour or two later and said, you know, they want to change the contract. I'm like, what's wrong? And she goes, not what's wrong. It's they want to turn this into a six part docu series, not just a documentary. So I was thrilled. I'm like, well, hell yeah. I wondered how they were going to get my story into a two hour <laughs> documentary. <laughs> So we, we signed a new contract. They would already be in the U.S., Mexico, and Philippines filming, but Australia got locked down. There are absolutely no one is allowed to fly out internationally unless you're returning to your home country, which is how I got out to come to the Philippines, or um, you know if it's for government-type stuff. So they're sitting there on, the, on this, you know, a dozen terabytes of footage and four box of tapes that I had mailed to them. I had recorded everything I'd done and I didn't put it all on the internet. Well, they've got all of that and they're waiting for COVID to lift so they can fly to the U S and start filming. God, well, then they'll go to Mexico and then they'll go to, uh, come to the Philippines and film. They'll put it together and it'll air on Netflix or HBO. It depends on who, Pays us the most, pays them the most. Um, but yeah, man, I'm thrilled to get my story out there in, 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 in a real way. Like I said, they've been trying to make a movie out of my life for a long time. Well, a movie's based on a true story. Well, this docuseries is the true story. And I'm excited to get it out there. I hope it, you, I hope it, it's good. It's going to speak to a lot of people. If you, if I can get through what I got through, you can too. There's no question. This is going to be a film that inspires and speaks to a lot of people. About every mistake a human can make, I did. <laughs> as hard as you can fall, I fell many, many, many times. And because of a, you know, people who love me, my will to survive, and sheer luck, and not quitting, I was fortunately able to get up from every one of those tragedies and, you know, make something out of my life. You also 
shown through an example of what the, the determination of human spirit is. That's one of the things I love talking to people like you on our show is that there are some people who've uh, gone through some hellacious things. They've overcome it, and it's that will. And my next question is going to lead into that is that we talked earlier about the police and about how some police are very hard or they're very um, aggressive in some countries and a little bit more lax in other countries. And then I remember reading one of your quotes on Facebook that you said, masculine toxicity is a sexist oxymoron. There's nothing toxic about being a man. And I believe that men should be strong. I do believe that there should be men that need to be strong, that need to be protectors, that need to stand up. It's not a sexist thing. It's just that, you know, that's what a male role should be and that women have a role as well and that we need to collaborate and work together. But I do feel like, at least in America, there are so many weak men, effeminate-type men, men that don't stand up and they're not strong. And I wonder if you agree or disagree that that could be a reason why the police are acting so aggressively because maybe if you had men that stand up, maybe you wouldn't have to call the police every five seconds or maybe you wouldn't have to worry about uh, you know calling the police all the time. Maybe if men stood up a little more and they did whatever they could to arm themselves and take the uh, initiative by themselves, then you wouldn't need a strong police force. Well, we're, we're being hit at a lot of fronts by trying to have our avatars change. They're trying to change who humans are, not necessarily what they do. And part of that is policing them and taking or, or shaming a man for being a man. And yes, uh, masculine tox- toxicity is an oxymoron. There's, it's uh, polar opposites. There's nothing toxic about being a man. Now, are there men who go out there and mistreat people and bully people? And yeah, but that's not, yes, there are, but that's not masculinity. That's just being a jerk. That's being a dick. That's not masculinity. True masculinity is very attractive and it's very sexy uh, to everybody, men and women included. You know, we do live on a planet that has male and female. And to, to try and make us one or act like one gender instead of two or three, however many they've got out there now, is, is absolutely ridiculous, and it's doing a disservice to humanity. I, I do have a problem with a lot of American men, especially American men. I'm like, man, where are your balls? <laughs> what, what? You're not being attractive by caving into this, this idea that the more female you can act the more you're going to be respected. It's not true. Look, there are qualities females have that are there for a reason, and they're a turn-on to men. Women, through their femininity, trigger our DNA without us even knowing it. That causes us to want to be with a woman. Same with a man. There are male things that men do that triggers the DNA in a woman that causes the woman to want to be with the man. And when you start dumbing those down or shaming people for being a man, putting them in jail for being a man, it's, it is, it's torture. 
And I cannot live like that, and I won't yeah. live like that. Feminism absolutely destroyed families in the United States. Feminiz feminism is, by its own definition, sexist. If it, if, it, if it weren't sexist and it were equal, then why don't they call it feminism maleism? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they are automatically excluding the male. And, and I, I don't like that. You know, I've been through four marriages, which means I was went through four divorces. And during those divorces, I had to learn how to date again. When you get used to one woman over and over and over, the same woman that you're in love with, I was deeply in love with all my wives. And then all of a sudden that's not there anymore. You think you can just automatically go out and catch another woman. And it's very difficult to. I had to read books and do YouTube studies and to learn how to catch a woman. And really? one thing, I, yeah. And one thing I learned from the, one of the common denominators in all those self-help dating books is women are turned on by your masculinity. Women like when a man walks into the room. Women likes a man who can protect the house. Nobody likes a jerk, man, but that's being a jerk or what I call a dick. That's being a dick. That's not being a man. So I don't apologize for any of my masculine qualities. And I'll, I'll, and that's topic with this. It's also important for men to get in touch with their feminine side, just like it's important for women to get in touch with their male side. You know, male and female both have estrogen and testosterone, the male-female hormones. So men have female traits too. And to get in touch with that, I think, helps a man become a complete man. Okay, I like flowers. I like having a glass of wine and lighting candles and doing that, that type of stuff. I like shopping in malls. I love shoes. <laughs> you know, those are all feminine qualities that I explore just as much because a confident man can wear pink. You know, a confident man can grow flowers. So it's important to get in touch with those feminine side too. It's called being a, a complete human. Awesome. That's what I want to do. Now this, this, this COVID stuff, I'm a hundred percent sure I know the root of, the what COVID you, scare. What Can do you we think talk of, about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I was just about to, you must be psychic because I was just about to ask you about that. I mean, it's clear that you, you're one of the, you, you question it. I question it so much. And so does Dr. Ron Paul. And so I think most people who are freedom based, have a freedom consciousness, do not believe this. I don't believe that the stats are all over the place. It doesn't make any sense. There's a wonderful podcast that I listen to called Psychology of Freedom with Jason Kristoff. He's been on our show. He really goes into it and says, they have never been able to isolate this thing. They don't have any images of this COVID thing up front, and it, it doesn't pass a lot of um, tests. So how do you see it? What is your perspective on it? Well, I'm 100% sure what it is. Okay. And I spent six months in Australia as a means of survival trying to figure out what the hell was going on on our planet because I have never seen anything like this. They shut down the globe. Everything was shut down. Every country was shut down. And I knew there was something more behind it than the flu, and I was right. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. We are 
they are ushering the planet in to the fourth industrial revolution or NWO, New World Order. Now, the first industrial revolution started when, with the invention of the steam engine. Second industrial revolution, electricity. Third industrial revolution was technology that a lot of us have seen, you know, with the making of the internet and all these uh, advances in technology. That was the third industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution is being ushered in now, and it's, it's actually defined as, I can almost... Uh, say it perfectly, but the fourth industrial revolution is defined as the mixing of the blurred line between physical, digital, and biological. So what they're trying to do now is change who humans are in the fourth industrial revolution. Not necessarily what we do, but who we are. You know, we are, science shows, quantum physics shows that we are avatars in a, in a really good virtual reality. We are ones and zeros. That's what we're made up of. Yes, we're made up of atoms, but those atoms are made up of ones and zeros. So we're coding. Now they want to change our coding to make the planet, quote unquote, a better place to live. Well, the people who own the planet see this planet as being overpopulated. Even though this planet has enough resources to feed everybody and give everybody a house, they'll make us believe that's not true. It's there's just too many slaves for them to care to deal with. You know, if you've ever flown around the world and you fly over big cities and you see huge, you know, acres and acres and miles and miles of slums, it looks like cancer on the face of the earth. Well, these wealthy people fly over that and go, that's just ridiculous. You know, these people need to be taken off this planet. So they are trying to depopulate the planet. I think the numbers out there are like there's 300 million of the elite and then they only need a billion people to, you know, show up at convenience stores, build their houses, things of that nature. So they want to depopulate the planet and do a, a restart of changed avatars. They've already started changing our avatars. How? Through GMO, of uh, the food we eat through spraying of the air, the, the chemtrails, through... What is those chemtrails again? Because I'm just kind of curious, because I've never really been able to get to elaborate. So what do they do? They, they spray stuff in the air. What does that do? Well, we don't, know what they're, we don't know what they're doing. You know, some of it could be for climate control, and a lot of it, uh, I think, could be being used to change our avatars. We know for certain they're changing our avatars. They're doing this through vaccines, too. You know, my kids, I didn't allow them to get vaccines, but they're, they're not after you and I to change who we are. This is a 10 to 20 year plan. They want our children's children. And you can take a vaccine and pass those genetics that change, that changed your the vaccine, changed your coding. You can pass that on to your child. And then that child passes it on to their child. This fourth industrial revolution was, a big part of that evidence was, um, oh, who's the who's the guy who, Elon Musk. Yep. Elon Musk just announced a robot. They've already put it in two humans. They claim two humans. I'm sure more. Um, they put it in pigs. They've got a robot that does a surgery, in and out surgery on the brain. It cuts a coin-sized hole out of your skull and replaces it with a coin-sized cap. 
that that hair-like wires are attached to. And those hair-like wires are put into the brain. And then they cap it, and your scalp grows back, and your hair grows back. Well, those hair-like wires that are in your brain are actually channels. I think he says they have 1,100, 11,000 channels, more than a cell phone. So with this device in your head, you can actually hear music. You can dial into Spotify and hear music in your head. You can dial it to have hearing like a dog. You'll be able to hear frequencies you've never been able to hear. Blind people will be able to see. You can dial in your sight to see like a hop. So it has a lot of superhuman attributes. That this, that, that We're not talking about technology they want. We're talking about technology they already have. He's Jeez. trying to get that surgery down to $2,000 per, per person. Well, it also can cure depression and PTSD, which I look forward to. Um, but the other side of that, if it can do all of those things, it can also dial down your desire to protest. And so law, law enforcement, by the way, in the future is going to be completely different than what it is I now. Saw that That's why they don't... quantum computing? Because we, yes, we had quantum... Dr. Nick Baggage on our show recently. Absolutely. Quant they have quantum computers now. I've been saying that for seven years. I told everybody they've got quantum computing. I know they have quantum computing. For those of you that don't know what it is, quantum computing is just like a God brain. It knows and sees everything. It knows all things. Well, they have the quantum computing. I know they have quantum computing. They just, one of the largest arrests in the history of mankind happened in the United States during COVID, and it was overlooked by the media. They arrested 750 Mexican cartel members inside the United States, seized like a million kilos of methamphetamine, large meth bust ever, and they did that in a six-month operation. You cannot, I know from being a, a, a drug agent, we would spend six months and could only maybe indict 15 to 30 people. So to indict 750 people, these quantum computers are, are, are quantum computers are being used to create algorithms. And algori all an algorithm is is a brain that collects data and then predicts the future or tells you what to do with all this data. Jeez. So the Elon Musk. While I was in Australia, he launched 10,000 satellites, and they fly in a row. They fly in rows. My friend in Australia saw them. I couldn't get outside quick enough, but they fly in rows. He's already launched 10,000. He has 40,000 more to launch for a total of 50,000 uh, satellites. And you know his claim is that it's for worldwide Internet, which it is. It's for worldwide Internet, but it's also part of a grid that's going to fly around the planet gathering data for the quantum computers to tell us how to react. So law enforcement will actually, um, there will be less crime. After they finish this plan, there will be virtually no crime. Why? Because the quantum computers will be able to detect your thoughts. So if you're at home thinking about a bank robbery, it'll signal the algorithms It'll alert the police. The police will knock at your door and say, look, you're having thoughts about robbing a bank. And if they're not convinced that it was just a thought and that there's more to it, then they'll dial down your willingness to rob a bank. 
Jeez, I couldn't imagine a more horrific, a more nightmarish situation. Is there any way out of this? Because I don't want to be, I don't want to live like that. I, 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 I'm free. I, I, you know, I, I don't care if the whole world wants to live and is willing to accept tyranny. I'm not. I, I want to yeah, well, I don't, I don't see, I don't, I don't see a way out of it, Ryan. Yeah. But fortunately, you don't know what you don't know. Part of, remember, the fourth industrial revolution is changing who humans are. So it's a complete recoding of humans. So our kids, kids, kids won't even know that they are being controlled in this manner. They won't know that they don't have a desire to protest anymore. And see, the Asian countries have already been doing this, like Japan, China. You know, they, they literally walk around like robots there and do nothing but work. That's because they've changed their avatars, and it was kind of the, the test field for the rest of the world. The people who own the world liked what they saw, an obedient uh, mass population of slaves that didn't give their handlers any trouble. And now they, they want to do that and are doing it to the rest of the world. So through vaccines, GMO, spraying the air, it's going to be such a gradual thing that changes humans that we won't realize it's happening to us. By the way, the, the most powerful way of changing avatars they've learned is through propaganda, repeating the same thing over and over and over. Us humans are coded to believe whatever we hear over and over and over. So even the strongest of minds, which would include you, Ryan, even the strongest of protesters, even the strongest activists will have a great grandchild who goes to work, comes home, and doesn't protest. That's their, that's their goal. Now, I, I'll, I'll give them some credit. Once the Fourth Industrial Revolution has merged into what they wanted there will be virtually no crime every slave will have a house there will be no more starvation there won't be all of these horrible there won't be prisons full of prisoners all these horrible things that we as humanitarians and activists hate now that'll all be gone but in trade was our free will to protest our masters yeah. you know I wonder, there's this old story about Atlantis. People try to wonder why it was destroyed. A teacher of mine, a really great teacher, Stuart Wilde, I think he was telling the story. He said Atlanteans were a very advanced civilization and they were using crystals to control people. And it is because they were drunk on power and they tried to do it. They went so far away from their nature that they themselves were destroyed. So I wonder and I'm trying to feel if this is something that's going to actually trigger a response in the spirit of humanity which will actually destroy itself if we're actually going to come through and destroy it. Now, Barry, I'm not getting this information just because of the fact that I want it. I, I would hope that something of like this happens because I don't want to see us be enslaved. I comes from talking to some of our guests that have been on the show that have had near-death experiences, that have had visions of what humanity was going to be like. Apparently that we are in our last stage. Humanity is going through a major purge or something where we're going to have a very small number of people on the planet. It's going to be as a result of uh, some probably man-made disaster. Also, it comes through talking to some of our other guests who've said that, okay, well, they feel that humanity in the end is going to be okay. I, what do you feel about this? I mean, if you not, if we take a, you take the thought process out of it, it's not about thinking, it's what do you feel and what have you garnered in your meditations and your experiences 
on ayahuasca? Like, what do you feel is ultimately going to happen? Well, I feel scared. I feel sad. I feel helpless. And probably the only, the only thing that keeps me from just ending it, I'm not suicidal, but these feelings are so overwhelming for me that sometimes death would be invited. And the only thing that keeps me from that is I still have hope. I don't know where that's coming from, but you asked me how I feel and to take away logic. I still have hope that at the end of the day, compared to how we were pre-COVID, the world will be a better place to live. Okay. And that hope. I mean, that is all. I think all you need is to have a little spark. And talking to Gerald Salente, if you have to come across him, founder and publisher of the Trans Journal, he says you need a tireless minority of people on the planet to take action. And in your experience, when you look at some of the work that you've done, being a tireless activist, and you think about all the lives you've changed, because you had such strong will to do things, would you compare yourself and say that people who are like you, that are really passionate, that really are committed to a cause, have far more influence than a thousand, two thousand, a hundred thousand people just bobbing their heads and just being, as uh, Henry Kissinger would say, useless eaters. Sorry to say that, but people are just not really doing anything. That a tireless minority of people like you could really change things and tip the tides, hopefully, in humanity's favor. Well, I hope so. I, and I think people like me throughout history have made some big changes. I, I do want to correct something that I, or not correct, correct you, Ryan, but sure. tweak a, just tweak a thought here. Um, to compare my activism to somebody else's activism, say a father whose works has kids working two jobs and he just writes an email every now and then to a congressman as part of his activism. We can't compare one person's level of activism to another. Maybe the people who are listening to me right now, they don't have the time that I had to do this. They don't have the background I had to be an activist. Maybe they're born in a different time where their life circumstances doesn't help them become an activist. I was born in a time during the drug war. I happened to be a drug agent. I saw a, a hole and I took it. Well, not everybody, not everybody has that chance. And I would like to get out from under the belief that the problem is we aren't doing anything. Because the mass, the, 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 the masses of people that I see and that I talk to are doing something. They're, they're doing the best they can. The problem is not that people don't want to do anything. The problem is they've stopped us from doing anything and everything. The, the people who own this planet through technology and through propaganda have interfered with humans joining together in like-mindedness and going forward. One of the things they like to use is exactly what we're talking about now. Uh, what you're not doing anything. 
And I see it constantly on Facebook and other social media platforms. When are y'all going to wake up? When are you going to do something? Well, people have been awoke and they've been doing things for years and years and years, you know, for decades. You know, we had a big civil rights movement during the 60s. And even prior to that, we had, you know, examples of humans joining together. But now because of shadow banning, you know, people didn't even know what shadow banning was. I complained of shadow banning a decade ago. I said, look, they're, they're not letting me reach my audience. They won't allow people like me to send out a message to a million hardcore followers because that's power. We can, if we were allowed to, we could mobilize a million people with no problem to descend on a prison and shut it down. You know, there's a lot we can do, but they're ahead of us in technology and propaganda. The government, the people who own this planet are so far ahead of us. For instance, people are saying, let's go to these new alternate social media platforms where we're not censored like Facebook. Well, it's impossible to start a social media platform and get millions of people on it where millions of people can communicate with each other. They won't allow it. You may be a good person who, who developed this social media platform, but the quantum computing is so far ahead of you, they will disrupt that. It's like your show, okay? 27,000 downloads a month is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. For this day and time. For this moment, we're in 2020, that's fantastic. But Ryan, I've listened to you for over five years, and somebody with your work ethic, your production quality, and subject matter, and the, the, the level of guests you have on your show, you should easily have millions of listeners. The reason you don't is because of technology. They're keeping us separated from each other on purpose. You know, I still wonder sometimes how did Joe Rogan get through? He has millions and millions. Yeah, he millions. has 190 million downloads a month. I, I, it's got to be yeah. amazing. But then... They got him. I, I wonder if that Spotify deal where they said, okay, they, they, they gave him $100 million to come to Spotify, and then they've got people overseeing it. So I wonder if that whole thing was about buying him in order to shut him down. It could be. You know, it could be. They're so far advanced of, of, of us, the slaves, that uh, we just have no idea what we're up against. So I, the human spirit is strong. People wanting to thrive and and raise a family and love each other is is really strong. But unfortunately, the technology they're using today to counter that is is stronger. Jeez. Their coding is stronger than our coding. It, what is the counterbalance for that? I, I'm trying to find out if there is a counterbalance. I talked to somebody, a good friend, who said that you can actually unite with those who are in spirit, human beings who have lived on this planet, and unite your cause to theirs. And bring in some, and that will, could probably help you. I'm I'm doing whatever I can. I, I'm trying to find anything possible to counterbalance. Is there anything that you, you can imagine? Let's say, for example, something that hasn't happened yet, which would actually uh, turn the scales. Well, I think the counter, I think the counterbalance and the uh, advice I've been giving people is during this transition between the third and fourth industrial revolution. Only the hustlers are going to have somewhat of a quality of life, meaning, yes, there are supercomputers. Um, yes, there's a plan in place. Yes, they are changing who humans are. But there's going to be glitches 
in these systems. And as we go throughout our daily lives, we need to look for one of those glitches and take advantage of it. What you're doing now, you may wake up tomorrow and is no longer working for you. And the people who are are sharp enough to adapt and to react and adapt are the ones who are going to make it through this transition period. At the end of the transmission tra uh, transition period, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, it's not going to be an issue. They're going to pretty much have everything in, in, in place that they want. I was wondering if, there's going to, if we're going to have a situation if there's going to be any kind of interaction with another life form, alien life. We've had Dr. Greer on our show before. I'm curious if we're going to have some kind of meeting where we're going to meet another civilization and maybe that'll change something. Because I, I do question and wonder if humanity repeats itself and goes through cycles and these cycles are repeatable and then we relive the same thing over and over again until we get right. And I wonder if what is happening right now has happened before. So you, do you sense it at all? Do you sense that we were living something or this is something that's unprecedented in the history of humanity? Well, you're talking to somebody who's been abducted, abducted by, you know, some other life force that they call aliens. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that in this documentary. Oh, my God. What happened? Well, I've had thousands of out-of-body experiences where I've been taken into ships and examined. That started when I was five years old. I thought wow. it was normal. So I, we're already in contact with other life forces. Now, on a physical-to-physical -physical level, I don't have proof, but I think... The people who own this planet are coached and given technologies to to make this planet work. So I think they're in touch with with uh, extraterrestrials, and we're not yet. But I see that coming in the future. That those things are easy for me to believe. Awesome. And Barry, what are some of the two or three things that a person right now listening can do to become a passionate freedom advocate? and to really start to make changes that they want to see in this world? Wow. Um, you know, everybody's looking for that silver bullet or that one or paragraph just a piece of the puzzle. Bite. You know, it's just, it's just a piece of the puzzle. It doesn't have to be one or two. It's just, it's an idea because that's what we're doing, Barry. We're, we're... Okay, I, I think, yeah, I think to start each human needs to own themselves. You know, pour whatever ones and zeros information into your mind and soul. Read, watch YouTube videos about owning yourself and what that means. If each person owns themselves and are truly a free being, then the world will be free. Great answer. Mr. Barry Cooper, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, for sharing your, your thoughts, your wisdom, your story. It was awesome. I learned so much. You can learn more about Barry by going to his website at nevergetbusted.com. Again, nevergetbusted.com. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to this site and I've gone to his videos and you've got a lot of awesome advice, how to pass the drug test, how to be safe. Again, again nevergetbusted.com. Barry, thank you so much for being on our show. It was truly an honor. My pleasure, Ryan. Peace and love. And never get busted. <laughs> okay, everyone. That concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth radio show. Special thanks to our legendary guest, Barry Cooper. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Constance Ellis, and our associate producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outoflimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, 
I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care. Thank you so much for listening.